Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. The account of John's witness of Jesus's ministry is coming to a crescendo and finish here. We began clear back in chapter one, sometime last, I think it was the end of last summer, and we have made it all the way to chapter 18. Last week, we looked at the greatest prayer ever prayed in all of human history. When we looked at John 17, Jesus is in the garden. He begins his prayer by uh, kind of giving a, uh, an account to his Father in heaven. He says, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And, and, and these men that you gave me, these disciples, I've not lost one of them except for the one that was always going to be lost, Judas. We're going to talk about him today. But then he moves on into the middle third of his prayer, and he lifts up these disciples that are surrounding him now, and he prays for their safety. He prays that, that God would, uh, his Father would be close to them during their hour of need. This is going to be the worst 24 hours of their life. And then the final third, uh, Jesus focuses his prayers on all who will believe. That's you and me. That's the church today, that, uh, that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do their Father's will. And so he's just finished that prayer. Now in chapter 18, the events begin to unfold rapidly and powerfully with the fulfillment of Judas's betrayal and don't let up until Jesus's resurrection. So it moves quickly. John goes through this rather quickly. Matthew and Luke give, I think, a, uh, a fuller account of this, but John moves very quickly through here. Today, we will witness the responses to persecution of three of the key characters here in our story. First, we see Jesus responding to persecution. Next, we see Judas responding to persecution. And finally, we see Peter. And in our timeline today, we will see five responses to persecution. And let's jump right in. Number one, we see Jesus's obedience. We see Jesus's obedience. Chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The prayer he had just prayed. He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. The Kidron Valley runs north and south, and it's just a few hundred yards to the east of Jerusalem. Through the small valley runs the brook Kidron, and it fed the Garden of Gethsemane with the water it required to hydrate the plants and the, and the trees there. Perhaps you remember last weekend I said that Jewish names often reveal the nature of the subject, and in this case, the name Gethsemane means olive press, olive press. And so Jesus would be pressed and crushed. His blood would be spilled out for you and for me as he took over the sin of the world. The Savior took his disciples to this garden often in order to pray and to teach and to rejuvenate in a tranquil setting. But on this night, it would be anything but peaceful. Jesus had full knowledge that Judas would bring the palace guards there to arrest him. Gardens play a major role in first in biblical history. 
Of course, all hum- humankind begins in the garden with God creating Adam and his role there. The name Gethsemane means paradise. The first sin was committed in the garden of Eden. Mankind was removed from the garden. But Jesus, the humble Son of God, obediently went into the garden of Gethsemane and onto the cross as He submitted to the will of His Father. So we see that all of human history began in a garden. And in the middle of human history, all mankind would be redeemed. The beginning of the redemption that would take place that day in the garden of Gethsemane. Philippians 2.8 reveals, "...and being found in appearance as a man..." Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. All of human history will end. It is a bookend. They are bookends, these gardens. All of human history will end in a garden too. And too beautiful to accurately describe with human words. The same man who wrote this book, the book uh, that we're reading, wrote the book of Revelation. And in chapters 20 and 21, John strives to describe the new heaven and the new earth and the amazing garden that is there. In this garden, there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more sin, only life, and that too abundant to do justice with the human languages. The waters of life will flow through this garden. The tree of life is in the middle of it. And the rivers that come down uh, from the throne of God surrounds the tree as it goes on both sides. It's beautiful. Beautiful. I can't wait to see the tree of life. And of course, in the middle of it is the one who stands bearing the image of His crucifixion throughout all eternity, reminding us of what He gave to us as a free gift, reminding us that we're only here because of Him. Jesus' response to persecution was obedience to the Father. And it should be ours as well. We never suffer alone, you and I. We never suffer needlessly. Our suffering draws us nearer to God. And through these difficult moments, God is glorified. And we are made stronger in our faith. We're looking at five responses to persecution. Here's number two. We see Judas's betrayal. We see Judas's betrayal. This is how Judas chooses to respond. Judas, as we will learn and have learned, is only in it for the money. He's in it for the fame. He, he believes, as do most of the Israelites at this point, believe that the Messiah was coming to overthrow Roman rule and give Israel its autonomy once more. But that's last on Jesus' list of things to do. He came to break the chokehold of sin. And when Judas realizes this, that he's not going to be someone famous, then he decides to get all he can before it comes crashing down. Judas responded with betrayal in his heart. Verse 2, And Judas who betrayed Jesus also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers, now pause right there. The word for detachment in Greek, another word for that would be a cohort of soldiers. A cohort 
is described as 600 men. I had never realized that until I went to the Greek and started digging into it. I always pictured there was five, six, seven soldiers with Judas. But on this night, he has at his fingertips 600 soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. They came there with lantern, torches, and weapons, it says. Now, while Judas may have had this many on standby, it is unlikely that he brought all 600 to the garden. They wouldn't fit. But 600 were on standby. And it does speak of his concern that Jesus might want to, might want to pull off one of those miracle moments. And Judas could only think, man, you better bring everyone. This Jesus, he does some tricks that you're just not going to believe. I've seen him disappear in the middle of, uh, of a crowd. I've seen him do things. And so they give him 600 troops to go with him if he needs them. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, these soldiers have come into the garden now, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. These are trained warriors, killers, These Roman soldiers, you didn't mess with them. They had conquered the world. But when the Savior, Creator, the most powerful, speaks, He has the ability to knock down soldiers like bowling pins. Now allow me to interject or lay over Luke 22.47, which is likely Peter's witness statement and given to Luke to record. Here's that layover from Luke. And while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he was called Judas. These are the soldiers. They're called a multitude. It's not five or six. You don't call it five or six soldiers, a multitude. A multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now let's go Flip back to John 18, 7. Then he asked them, the soldiers again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. He's talking about his followers. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke. And he just prayed this last week in 17 to his father, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, he's talking to his father, I have lost none. So in the middle of all of this, he's about to be arrested and drug off and, and all of the things we know that took place. But his heart is still for his disciples. You've come for me. Jesus knows what is about to happen to him. He's planned for it all his life. It's the reason he came. You've come for me. Let these others go. And they do. It is clear that Judas was concerned about how this betrayal and arrest would go down. He must have thought that the disciples would try to deceive the soldiers so he would identify Jesus, the subject of the arrest warrant, by kissing him on the cheek, which was a sign of endearment and friendship and love in the first century of Israel. Jesus called Judas out for his deceptive act. 
It's bad enough that he's doing this, but he's going to do it with a kiss. Wow, the kiss of betrayal. Imagine this treasonous man for a moment. He'd walked with Jesus. He'd seen perhaps or heard perhaps thousands of his teachings. He'd witnessed perhaps thousands of his miracles. He'd watched as a blind man's eyes opened. He, He had witnessed a man who had never walked stand up and rise. He had witnessed countless numbers of this. And yet he had never allowed any of them to change his heart from doubt into faith. How many people like this who sit in church week in and week out serving in various positions or ministries will be standing in front of Christ at the great white throne room judgment only to be sentenced to an eternity in hell for never having surrendered to the life of Jesus. Never having reached out and taken that free gift for themselves, attending church, coming to a Bible study, serving on a team here at RCC, listening to Christian music, reading your Bible. Those are all good things. And those are all good things to do after you come to Christ. They're a result, kind of a picture, a confirmation that you're saved when you want to serve and help others. You want to share the good news that you've received. Those are all good things. But it's not salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We can't. There's nothing we can bring to the table. Only repenting from your sin, turning away from it and towards God, making Jesus your Savior and Lord of your life will secure your place as a child of God. Don't be deceived. You can't work your way to heaven. And there's religions all around us that will tell you that. And they are going to be so disappointed one day when they find out that all that work amounted to nothing because Jesus already paid the bill. They could bring nothing to the table. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a barn makes you a horse. Only faith in Him, placing your trust and calling out on the name of Jesus. There is no other name by which man must be saved. There is no other way to God but Jesus. We've been looking at five responses to persecution. And first we saw Jesus response to with obedience we see judas's betrayal and number three we see peter's defiance we see peter's defiance earlier in the evening peter had told jesus he was ready to die for him and jesus rebuked him stating that he would instead fail jesus by denying his savior three times here the young impetuous teen decided to prove jesus wrong he said, I'll die for you. I'm not going to do it. I'll die for you. I'm ready to, to go. Let's just say the word. And in this moment, Peter decides to prove Jesus wrong. And he pulls out his sword and declares war. Now, if he'd have thought about it, one fisherman with a rusty sword that's probably dull, he probably rarely trained with the sword against, who knows, 60 or 100 Roman soldiers trained to do battle here's the story verse 10 then simon peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant you find it funny that he didn't attack a roman soldier (laughs) i'll show you how brave i am you over there (laughs) you know there's all these guys standing there you know they're ready to go they got their whatever they got their their 
swords and perhaps some of them have spears. Perhaps some of them are even carrying those Roman shields. Look pretty intimidating, but he picks a servant. Well, his untrained arm kind of fails him and he cuts off his right ear. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had told his disciples to sell their cloaks and buy a sword. Jesus was using this phrase, I believe, as a metaphor for the coming trials and the persecutions coming their way, the spiritual warfare they would have to do and contend with. Jesus' kingdom would not be won with physical wars or battles, but through their faith in Christ, through the use of God's Word and the determination to use both. Paul stated in Ephesians 6 that we don't fight using the weapons fashioned by this world in physical battles. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And as I said a few weeks ago, if we could but pull back the physical world, the curtain, and peek into the spiritual world that's going on all around us, I don't think we would be able to sleep for, for nights after that. I mean, to see the demons and the, the battles that are going on all around us for men's souls might uh, quicken us, might cause us to fall to our knees more, to grab hold of God's Word and never let go of it. Peter should have known that Jesus didn't want or need His protection for crucifixion had always been part of His plan from the beginning. Jesus had come to earth in order to give His life a ransom for many. Peter was acting defiant, not only towards the soldiers here, but more importantly, towards Jesus and His plan for redemption. You may remember that up in Caesarea Philippi, they went up there and, and uh, Jesus asked who, you know, who they say I am, and they gave several of the prophets ideas. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Lord, the Son of the living God. Peter had the right answer there. But just a few minutes later, <laughs> Jesus says, He's, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to lay my life down. What does Peter do? He pulls the Savior aside and says, not so. That's two words you should never tell Jesus. That's not happening. You're wrong. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. From mountaintop <laughs> to a plane crash. You're the, you're the son of God. Yes, Peter, my father revealed that to you. You're not going to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Peter was always you know, the first to respond, whether right or wrong. Peter's pride got the best of him, and he acted out against the plans of his teacher. Jesus was in the garden that night so that he could be arrested, tried, beaten, nailed to a cross, Buried in a grave and three days later, defeating death itself, the result of sin. And Peter wasn't getting in the way. No foolish fisherman was going to get in his way. He came for this purpose. While we might admire Peter's bravado, and there's a part of me that does, on this night, it was devil-induced. Why did this young fisherman and future pastor fail? Well, let me give you some thoughts on that. He had argued with Jesus up at Philippi. Not a good thing to do. The Lord had warned him just a couple hours before this happened. You're, you're going to fail me. 
you're going to deny even knowing me three times before the, the rooster crows. Peter denied that would happen. He talked when he should have been listening. He acted when he should have been still. And he became like the soldiers there at that scene in the garden, carrying a weapon fashioned by man. Jesus didn't require Peter's sword to protect him. As the old hymn goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. He wasn't looking for backup in the garden. He was looking to lay down his life. And unbeknown to the soldiers, they helped him redeem the world that night. Peter cut off Malchus's ear and Jesus immediately healed him by putting the ear back on. And this is Jesus' final miracle before the cross. An act of mercy, an act of love, an act of grace towards this servant. Peter used the wrong sword in the garden, but just weeks later after being restored to ministry by Jesus in a beautiful scene that's coming up that I hope you'll be here for when we go into chapter 20. On that day, Peter would pick up a different sword, the sword of the Word, being directed by the Holy Spirit, and he would win 3,000 souls in a single sermon, his first. Peter just wore the wrong armor. He was in a wrong state of mind, and he swung the wrong weapon that night. We're looking at five responses to persecution. Jesus' response of obedience. We see Judas's betrayal. Or first, Jesus' response to obedience, Judas's betrayal, Peter's defiance. And now number four, we see the Savior's subjection. Peter was disobeying that night, but Jesus was obeying his Father's will. Over in Matthew 26, 39, we hear Jesus prayed saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And while Peter held a sword, Jesus held a cup. It was called the cup of suffering. Let's go to verse 11 now. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Jesus was asking kind of a rhetorical question. In effect, are you suggesting that I should disobey my father and reject his will? Jesus had told them of the plan, but Peter was having none of it. Verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Interesting to note, high priest, the position of high priest was for a lifetime. Why had Annas been removed from the position of high priest? Now, there's a lot of um, speculation out there. My guess is he probably was using funds for his own purpose, perhaps. Maybe his power in a way he shouldn't. And he was removed. And so he had the right, however, to appoint who's next in line. And he, uh, he appoints his son-in-law. I'm sure there's no conflict of interest, though. <laughs> Verse 14, now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that one man should die for the people. And in that statement, he's prophesying the truth. It was expedient that one man, Jesus Christ, 
should die for all the people. The cup has always been used to describe the path one must take in life. Cups throughout the Old Testament, you read of them in various ways. Jeremiah imagined the anger of God as a cup being poured out on Israel's disobedience. And that cup of of disobedience included them going to Babylon for 70 years for their disobedience. That was a cup of tragedy. King David described the joy of the Lord as a cup overflowing. At the Passover dinner, Jesus equated the cup of wine to his blood for the forgiveness of sins. The disciples were very familiar with this metaphor. Jesus' cup was to take the sin of the world, and it was most bitter to him. The cup had been handed to Jesus by his Father. And when your Father hands you a cup, you can trust him to drink it. We should remember that any cup the Father has for us in our life is for our good and his glory. So we can trust Him through any suffering He allows in our lives. And I believe one of the prime purposes for suffering that you and I experience is to grow us deeper into our faith regarding Him and our trust in Him. But I think it's also to prepare us for another uh, calling that He will give you down the road. Many of us don't want that. We don't want the cup of suffering. It's painful. It hurts. But down the road, if you're, if you're wise, if you follow Christ and if you trust Him with this suffering, when you go through it, on the other side, you can help someone else who's just going into their storm. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ's followers through obedience to His Word.